Well, listen, let's get started. We're in the beginning of chapter 6. Now, I want to remind you that um, chapter 6 is really um, continuing from chapter 5. Remember, there, in the original letter, there were no chapter breaks or verses that was added later. Uh, but anyway, this is the third uh, particularly specific interpersonal relationship that's affected by being filled with the Spirit. Remember the governing verse for the last section of the book of Ephesians, which begins in verse 18 of chapter 5, is to be under the Spirit's control, to be controlled by the Spirit. And it affects marriage relationships, it affects parent-child relationships, and now I'm choosing to call this employee-employer relationship, even though uh, I read from the ESV translation, even in the translation, it has bond servant or slave and master. But as you probably know, if you don't know, you should know, this is just a slide of a fresco that was on the wall of a one of the homes in, in Pompeii, which was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. But anyway, it, it gives you a, a little bit of an idea of what slaves looked like. Slavery was the primary economic relationship of the ancient world. Um, the estimates are all over the board because we do not have reliable data. Some estimates put it as high as a half of the population of the Roman Empire. This slide puts it about a third, and it would depend on, on when you are in the period because slavery in the ancient world was not like slavery in the pre-Civil War South in the United States, which was racial slavery, which was chattel. Chattel means property. And so this little slide just summarizes a little bit about slavery in the ancient world. And I, I just want to make sure that you have a fairly understanding, albeit a little bit superficial because we're not studying it as a subject of history, but a little bit of an idea. It was the primary economic relationship of the ancient world. In the first century, there was not a great deal of difference between a slave and the average free person. Now, now, what I mean by that is slaves in the ancient world were not marked by race, speech, or clothing. There, um, as a matter of fact, if you were in a marketplace or whatever, you would not be able to tell the difference, quite honestly, in the agora of the typical cities. Uh, slaves were not segregated from the rest of society as they were in the American South. Slaves often made the same wage as free, uh, free laborers. And honestly, many slaves were not poor. They could own property. They could buy their own freedom if they, if they wished. And typically, slavery in the ancient world was not for life. It was a period of time. And there are a lot of reasons why a person would get into slavery. Uh, the, the most a familiar and most widely practiced source of slavery was for debt. If you owed a debt and you could not pay that debt, you then became a slave uh, to that person or uh, that institution. Uh, slaves were uh, often uh, the bondage for not paying a debt could be 10 years or 15 years, of course, depending on the size of it. In addition, uh, if you were in an area which was conquered by the Roman Empire, it would not be unusual for a number of the women and children to be sold into slavery for a period of time. 
so, I mean, slavery is a complicated thing in the ancient world. It is a very complicated thing. But it is really not wise to compare the slavery in his institution in the pre-Civil War South, which was very racial. There were four million black slaves in the United States in 1860 when, the, when Lincoln was elected. Um, the, the, the slavery was chattel. It was property. You could be bought and sold at the highest price. Families meant nothing. Uh, it was very common for a slave master to break up families, sell the children, because they had the potential for the rest of their lives, and they were very valuable. That is not how this was practiced in the ancient world. So with that very brief historical introduction, the other thing I want to mention is that the Church of Jesus Christ, as it penetrated this Greco-Roman world, it revolutionized society. And so in a typical house church, and remember, we've talked about this before, it's not until you get into the 300s where the local churches begin to build buildings, which become the local church. The typical, the typical Sunday you, were, you would spend in a house church, usually someone a little more affluent, simply because they had the room. But in these house churches, you would see something absolutely radical. You would see slaves and their masters worshiping Jesus Christ together. You would see the children of slaves and the children of masters playing together. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ broke down all social barriers, ultimately, and it, it absolutely radicalized the societal structures of the ancient world. And what I did in, um, in this slide, and, and there's a it's complicated slide, there's an awful lot on it, but it shows you the basic breakdown of the Greco-Roman society approximately at the time of Christ. And every one of these categories in the Greco-Roman society uh, experienced upheaval as a result of the gospel. And the, the, the soldiers, as they, and that's right in the middle of the pyramid, the soldiers, as they were converted to Christ, they would take the gospel to every part of the Roman Empire. As far as we know in, his, in history, the gospel first reached England, that, that cluster of islands uh, off the coast of France. England uh, experienced the gospel first by Roman soldiers. When Rome conquered um, uh, uh, the area of London, Londonium, they actually named it Londonium, the first people to bring the gospel there were, were these Roman soldiers. And as slaves came to know Christ, they would actually worship with their masters in a typical house church. This is a radical um, upheaval of the social institutions of the Greco-Roman world. So what is Paul doing here? In this passage, chapter 6, 5 through 9, he is giving instructions to the slave, the bondservant, as well as the master. The bondservant, the, the Greek word for that is doulos. Um, it's a very common word, but it it was often used, and that's why bondservant particularly captures more accurately the term doulos than just slave, because when you see slave, you think of the American South. But if, I, if they use the word bondservant, which is what the ESV is using, you, you, you think a little more differently. Okay, what does that mean? Bondservant. As I said, the largest reason people went into slavery was because of debt. 
and therefore you are a bond servant for a block of time. All right, now, I've said a lot about the background. I wanted to have a little bit of a smattering of the history. And so, and then thirdly, the social upheaval that Christianity brought. So here's Paul's instructions. These are in the imperative mood. These are commands. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Now, isn't that interesting? He uses the adverb earthly, because your real master is Jesus. But your earthly masters, for whatever reasons that you got into slavery, whatever the circumstances are, remember, God is a God of order. God is a God of structure. God is a God who wants his followers to respect authority because authorities are set up by him. And so obey your earthly masters. And there are six qualities. This is how I've framed it. You see it there in the blue. Six qualities of this obedience. One with fear. Now, as, as always, the word fear can mean you know, cowering in fear, or it can have the idea of, of a respect for that authority, which I think is a little more the tendency here, and trembling. Those two qualities, you are willingly submitting to their authority. And so fear and trembling is used together throughout the New Testament as, a, as a, uh, an example or an illustration or using words to define what respect for authority means, and with a sincere heart. And so the idea of a sincere heart is you're not doing this, okay, I'll obey because I have to, but you are willingly, you're willingly coming under this authority. Because remember, there are multiple reasons why you went into slavery. And debt, at the time of Jesus in the first century, debt was the primary means of going into slavery. Then, in a sense, this is part of what you must do within the society in which you live. You can't pay your debt. You go into an indentured servitude type of relationship. And so fear, and with a sincere heart. But then notice, notice the comparative as, as you would Christ. And so there, as you saw when we were talking about the husband-wife relationships in marriage, and as children are to obey their parents following the, the fifth commandment of, of the Old Testament Decalogue, here it's the same thing. As you, as you have that response of awe and dignity and respect and sincerity in your relationship with Jesus, that should define your relationship to your master whatever the cause of you going into slavery. Now, men and women, th that is absolutely radical. Instead of resisting it, accept it at this point in your life, and as you represent Christ, you do with these qualities. And then six, verse 6, he continues to describe, not by the way of eye service as people servers, but as, as servants of Christ. Now, eye service, they're translating a term there. It's a metaphor, but it, not just when your master is looking at you, or not just to please on the surface, but you are sincerely, not superficially, not shallowly, as eye service for people, just to please somebody, you serve Christ. 
So what's the inference we can draw from that? Your real master is Jesus. Your real Lord in this relationship is Jesus. And so as you serve Christ, not, not as people please, as a shallow superficial, this is sincere, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. Now, you can see this. I mean, this little reference to the relationship of Jesus is three times in the instructions to these bond servants. Fear and trembling, as you would Christ, not as I service or people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, and rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man. Your real boss is Jesus. Now, what I would like to do before we, we look at, at verse 8, what I would like to do is, and this is why I titled it, entitled it this way, we do not have in the 21st century, our primary economic relationship is slave to master. Our primary relationship is employee to employer. And so what we need to do is make this an application of the 21st century. This is the way employees should look at their employer, their boss, whether it's their immediate boss or their ultimate boss, the CEO of the company or whatever. And so you, you see now this radical, this radical dimension of a work ethic that the Bible is calling us to. And again, this, this work ethic, I've, I've read a number of historical books on this, some written by people who don't care about Christianity at all, but part of their argument is this work ethic transformed the workplace. And in a sense, that's true because this is a radical work, work ethic that the Bible is calling us to. You see this in the Old Testament wisdom literature, and you see it here, in the, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings, here in Ephesians, and in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. That's the corresponding passage to this in the book of Colossians. Very similar language, similar framework. But Jim? this now is, is a work ethic, yes. Um, so then compare if they weren't subservient before, you know, if they weren't Christians, uh, can you kind of describe culturally how did they conduct themselves? Well, that, <laughs> that was one of, the, one of the challenges because in the typical economic relationship uh, in the ancient world, there really wasn't a, you know, like in the United States or some parts of uh, other parts of the world, you work for a company and you may work for that company all your life. That is not how it worked in the ancient world. The, the, if you were not a slave, you were what was called a day laborer. And you would, uh, again, I'll use words we use today, you would contract for a day. It might be during harvest, you, you'll show up every day to go out and cut the wheat or pick, you know, pick strawberries or whatever it would be. But it, you were functioning, to, and this was a real challenge, Glenn, because very often you're hiring people as day laborers, you have no idea the kind of work they're going to be. Are they going to be conscientious? Are they going to be serious? You had no idea because basically you were just very thankful. You could get enough people to do what you wanted done that day. And that was one of the reasons why slavery 
was, was the prim primary economic relationship for lots of reasons, which I talked about earlier. And so that's why, in a sense, the slave-master slave relationship in, in terms of the workplace was a preferred relationship rather than day-laborer relationship. And so day-laborers were often not trustworthy. They often would steal from their masters, their, their bosses, their overseers, as they were often called, and they weren't reliable. And so here's Paul laying out a work ethic, which is, is utterly radical and unheard of in the ancient world. But yet it's this whole dimension of what we've seen in the Apostle Paul's uh, book here of Ephesians. The sound doctrine of the first three chapters produces the godly living, which transforms everything in culture. And here is where the gospel transforms the workplace. And uh, it really, it has, it has an unbelievable dimension of upheaval in a positive sense in the ancient world. And um, there are extra-biblical accounts of of slaves who became very loyal, uh, and where they often the master would then adopt them as their son or daughter, would bring them into the family. Um, they would they would inherit things from their master because this work ethic is so transforming this socioeconomic um, aspect of Greco-Roman society. So that's why uh, this day laborer versus slave laborer. The slave labor was actually a preferred relationship because they would become dependable. And once they became Christians, my goodness, this, this really transformed the economic relationships of the ancient world. That was a very long answer to your question. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, but, but would it also be affected by the masters if they're, would, yes. would they not then turn around and take advantage of? Yes, yes. And that's why in verse 9, Paul gives the instruction to the master as well. Look at, verse, look at verse 8 with me. The causal participle here. So, running service of goodwill is to the Lord and not to man, because you know, that's the sense of that participle, because you know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. This work ethic has eternal significance. This work ethic affects rewards in heaven. Now, this, again, I often would put it this way when I would teach or even preach. I, I preached on the work ethic of, of, uh, of the Bible a number of times over the years. And one of the elements that I always worked in, there is an eternal significance to our work. And here you see it in verse 8. If you go to Colossians chapter 3, it's in verse 24. It's the same idea the same thought, that God regards your performance, your work, as eternally significant. He, he received back from the Lord. That, that The implication of that is as a reward. Now, one of the challenges of a reward is you, you think of something material, a bonus in your Christmas stock check or something like that. That's not the idea. It's the eternal significance of this. It's the place in the coming kingdom. And so Paul is doing what he does here, and then in Colossians 3, verse 24, adding the eternal significance of the work ethic. 
And then, and I respond a little bit to, to Glenn there, but verse 9 is then the address to the master, the overseer, the boss. Do the same to them and stop your threatening. Now, do the same to them is just go back through those qualities. You are serving the Lord, the as you would Christ, as bondservants Christ, as to the Lord, that applies to the master. Everything you do is to affect, is to reflect your relationship with Jesus Christ. So as Jesus Christ is a servant leader, you be a servant leader, because you know, and here again, it's causal participle, because you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. In other words, God does not play favorite, show partiality to you because you're the boss or you're the overseer. God regards, this is radical, God regards you and your workers as spiritual equal. And he regards each of you having eternally significant obligations to one another, which is to mirror your obligation to him. Now, I've tried to spend a fair amount of time on this, because that's only a few verses, five through nine, but I hope what I really wanted to get across here is how utterly radical this is. This teaching is absolutely radical in the ancient world. I think it's radical in the 21st century. But it's laying out the structure of a work ethic, and it is laying out the mutual obligation between employer and employee because they both have the same master in heaven. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 9. They yeah. both have the same master. Let's put it another way. They both serve the same Lord. And it's like what you see throughout all of Scripture. Everyone is equal before God, created in his image. They're equal at the cross if they put their faith in Christ. They're equal in being joint heirs with Christ. First Peter 3, 7. And so those spiritual equality factors are not the issue. The issue is role differences and role relationship. But those roles are to reflect, are to mirror your relationship with Jesus, if you're a Christian. Yeah, and so, I mean, it seemed like that, would, that might be a, a, a situation where there would be a mutual respect between the master right. and the slave uh, because of their, their, uh, their belief in Jesus Christ. That's and, correct. And that teaching. That, no, that's, that's correct. I think that this is Woody who's talking. That's correct, Woody. And there's that mutual respect and, and mutual honor of one another. And we, honestly, we have some extra-biblical sources, and they, they're beyond the first century, into the second century. But anyway, of slaves and masters, their families sitting together in church, worshiping. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> nowhere, and I mean this absolutely and categorically, nowhere in the Greco-Roman world would you see that. It was only in the Church of Jesus Christ where there was an understanding of that spiritual equality, that understanding of their obligations and their role responsibilities, and their understanding that they both serve Christ. And so you're right, that would foster respect and dignity among 
master and slave. And that's, that's why, I mean, I've um, done a little bit of consulting with a couple of companies where the, the owner of, that's why I was asked to do it, the owner of the company is a strong believer in Jesus Christ. And we talked about this passage and the Colossians passage as how he, what, what, what kind of things he should do in terms of his employees to reflect what Paul is teaching in Colossians and in, in Ephesians in the relationship with his workers, in the relationship with his employees. And then the same thing with the employees. And you see, if, if, we, if, we, if this would universally, char- universally characterize the United States of America and the workplace in the United States of America, there would be no unions, there would be no courts, there wouldn't be any basic problem because everybody is understanding that they both serve the same master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with these kinds of qualities, I mean, you can see, I keep using this word, but how radical and revolutionary this is, this teaching is. This is a work ethic that's sourced in God because work to God is something holy. Work to God is something treasured. It's a stewardship from God. Work is not the result of the fall in Genesis 3. What's affected is the the, the toil and, and labor in a cursed world. That's what makes it difficult, but it's renewed in Christ. And so, I mean, this is just phenomenal. When you really sit down and look at this and study it, your relationship with Jesus Christ affects your relationship with everyone else. We've seen it in marriage. We've seen it in parent-child relationships. We now see it in employee-employer relationship. And so this is one of the reasons why in those early centuries how, how much upheaval Christianity brought to the world. I don't mean only negative, very positive. It's overturning the kinds of, of traditions and practices in the terms of this new work ethic. Okay, any questions? Dr. Ekman, yeah. uh, when, when you talk about upheaval and the uh, economic changes, are is, is this including the day laborers? Um, we don't know how many day laborers there were as compared with bond servants and things like that. And I can see the family relationship, but did this affect the attitude of the day workers so far as we know with, with their casual employers who hired them to do certain things? That, let me put it this way, it should, because if you look at verse 8, uh, Paul says, you receive back from the Lord, whether it's a bondservant or is free. So, I mean, you see both categories there of, of the workplace. But to be specific in answering your question, John, I'm not comfortable enough with all the historical literature on this to answer it satisfactorily. I'm not sure. Right? I really am not. I, I, I think... My my sense is that it would have had the same kind of an effect over time in, in some of these relationships of employee, bond servant, or day laborer, free day laborer relationship. But I don't I don't know enough about some of that to be able to say a lot of the extra biblical literature is telling this, telling us this about the day laborer. I, I am not that thoroughly versed on that part of the Greco-Roman world at this time. I have a, another question uh, about the evolution, uh, abolition of uh, slavery in, in England under, I think, Witherspoon. Um, was that William Wil- Wilberforce. Wilberforce? Wilberforce. Ancient word, world. Uh, 
or what was the difference between slavery in England and what we had here in the South? Uh, very similar. The, the, very the, similar. The slavery, okay. the slavery that, that was present in England, Wilberforce was successful in getting the slave trade abolished in 1806, mm -hmm. and then slavery totally abolished throughout the entire British Empire in 1832. But the slavery that existed in England and in all parts of the British Empire, which you know was fairly large by the 19th century, was very similar to slavery in the American South. It 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 was racial. Almost all slaves, the estimated number of slaves that permeated the British Empire and the Spanish Empire, because they were the two major empires at that time, was about 12 million slaves. Okay, Four you. million of those 12 million were in the United States. So the slavery, John, at that time was virtually identical uh, in, in, in virtually all parts of the Spanish world and in, in the English world in terms of their empires. Okay, now, one of the things the Spanish, I'll tell you another story and I'll stop this. One of the things that the Spanish Empire did, which the British Empire did mm -hmm. not do, is that the Spanish Empire enslaved Indians. They enslaved a lot of the, what we would call Native Americans. Right. And then one of the things that happened was in the Spanish Empire, the, uh, the Native American slaves and the African slaves that had been brought in from Africa intermarried and, and produced what are called mestizos. And that's, uh, it, 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 made the, it made the civilization of the Spanish Empire even more complicated and more difficult. So, but to answer your question, in the 19th century, they're virtually identical wherever you are in, in the world. And can I um, um, come at the bond servant thing from a, a kind of a different angle? Um, my understanding of bond servant or doulos is kind of a slave by choice. There was some sort of a ceremony with an, an owl where they would pierce the ear and somebody would say that I choose to continue to be a slave. Does that put scope on the um, the commandment here that you were a bond servant by choice or a bond servant of Christ, what's the the context here on on verse five versus you know there's a little bit of difference they they bring it inclusive in verse eight, but I'm really asking about what the scope of verse five is. Well, it, it, the scope of verse five would be all inclusive, all dimensions, and you are right and and. You see this in much of the ancient world, I and mean, even the Old Testament Levitical Code refers to some of this. But, and I, this is going to sound like I'm approving of it, I'm not. But often, the bond servant, the doulos, the indentured form of servitude, was preferable, in many cases, preferable to being a day laborer. And so many, many would choose to be a doulos for life. And as you said, I mean, there, there were often then uh, symbolic things that were used as a part of that where it marked now as that bond servant for life. So but, am I conflating two things, bond servant and bond servant for life? Am I collapsing them into doulos you, where yes, there's a distinction? Can, yes, you can. Yes, you can. That you, you, you probably should do that because Paul is not making any, he is not recognizing as there always is in all things, the variety of possibilities of bond servant, of doulos. 
there are varieties of what that term could apply to in the ancient world, especially the Greco-Roman world is what I really should say, because that's whom he's writing to. But it's, it's collecting all that together. Regardless of how you became a doulos, you are a doulos. Here are your responsibilities. Got it. But it is, it is important, as I said a moment ago, and I said this earlier, and again, I'm not saying this and, I, and I'm approving of it, but the, a, a bond servant often lived a better life than a day laborer for a lot of reasons, some of which we've talked a little bit about. So often, not always, but often people would prefer to be a do-loss for life because there's a, there's a degree of security to that, and there was a degree of, of, uh, you know, of dependability there. Whereas in a today laborer, that, that could be a, a, tough, a tough life, depending on your specific situation. So anyway, all right, this is good stuff, good, good questions, good dialogue on that. But the takeaway from this is, and this would be my primary focus, there is a work ethic laid out here for both the employer and the employee, that is transcultural. This work ethic should define how we look at this relationship in the 21st century. And that is not typical in, in, in the United States, let alone other parts of the world. One more question, Dr. Eckman, if I could. Uh, yes. Verse eight, the uh, reward, yeah. the reference to the reward that's there. Yes. Uh, can you explain? Talk a bit more about that. Uh, I mean, after, I mean, I can tell you after about four decades in the corporate world, those who uh, were meek and oftentimes got run over. And so I don't know whether this is talking about immediate re reward for your work and your, your attitude or whether we're talking about something that's futuristic or both. Well, I think it, it, Perhaps could be both a little bit, uh, Jim. I think you're the one who's asking this question. But because of the language that Paul uses in Colossians 3.24, I think the reference is more specifically to the future. In other words, in the kingdom, uh, the, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, when we rule and reign with him. Um, now, what... You want me to say, at least maybe you don't, but what I'm thinking you want me to say is specifically, what does that mean? <laughs> what is the nature of the reward? I don't know. There have been, and I, I am not comfortable. I have a position on it, but I'm not comfortable with it. And the New Testament speaks of five crowns that believers will receive, and each crown is related to something very specific. That The, the term crown is not used here. So what, what Paul seems to be driving home, Jim, from particularly verse 24 of chapter 3 of Colossians, as well as here in verse 8, and that's how I, I put it this way, there's an eternal significance to your work. There's an eternal significance to how you earn your living, how you feed your family, your work. And that work ethic is, is something that, that the Lord Jesus will reward at the Bema seat, what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But specifically, what is the nature and content of that? I, I honestly don't know. I, the Bible seems to be intentionally silent on some of this. 
this idea of rewards, the idea of, 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 of Jesus rewarding us in the coming kingdom, uh, the, the challenge that as Americans, we always think of reward in, in the material sense, you know, an extra bonus in your paycheck or some special gift that you receive or special honor or a plaque or whatever. I, I'm not sure that's what Jesus has in mind here. I'm not sure this is what Paul's referring to. Some, some suggest, uh, and I'm a little, this is where I lean toward this, that what this really means is if you have been faithful in your stewardship responsibilities God has assigned to you in, in your earthly life, that will affect your stewardship responsibilities as joint heirs with Christ. Because Paul alludes this a little bit when he's talking to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 6, when he's talking about, you know, they're taking one of the walker. Don't you realize that in the coming kingdom, you're going to have ruling authority over the angels? And he says, if you're going to have that kind of responsibility, you should be able to handle this now. The future promise affects present behavior. And so that's what he's trying to do here. There's an eternal dimension to your work ethic. Pursue it, because the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus will honor that in the coming kingdom. Okay, what does that mean? I, I don't exactly know. But that motivation is, at the very, very least, it means, as it says in one of the Gospels, Jesus will look us in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And in a way, that would, that would be somewhat satisfactory. Here, Jesus, look, look us in the eye and say to us, well done. You've done what I've wanted you to do in representing me. And so exactly what that eternal reward involves, its content and nature, I'm, I'm not satisfied that I completely understand what that means. I'm not sure I helped much, Jim. <laughs> well, you, well, you did. I mean, it seems like in, in this area as well as so many other areas that faith is the operative word. Yeah. And, then, and then, I mean, I just want to say that... Um, at least in my life experience, sometimes uh, getting a well done from somebody I respect is a lot more meaningful than a mm -hmm. spiff in my paycheck or something like that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. to get to get to get a well done from the Lord would be yes, awesome. I mean, I don't know how do you do how do you do better than that? Yes. I mean, I th thank you for saying that because I I think that that certainly is a part of this. I mean, just try to put yourself in that place when you stand before Jesus, and he looks at you and says, well done. Well done. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah, I might have another comment on that. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about day laborers, let's, let's uh, say maybe they're like a temporary worker. And, sure. And, and they may get a reward before the eternal reward. They may, um, maybe their master that, that they're temporarily working for uh, needs another person uh, more permanent and and might <laughs> might take that day laborer and and ask him if he'd like to be a slave and in for him I don't know if that would work or not but if he was really yeah. a good worker you would think that that he would get recognition for it well as I said uh, we we do have examples of um, that is not typical, but we do have examples 
of um, in, in extra biblical literature of of a wealthy Roman aristocrat adopting some of his slaves or, or laborers. I mean, you know, adopting into his family where they inherit a certain amount of the wealth of that of that person. Uh, now that was not the norm, but we do have examples. So that would be an example of uh, an earthly reward, so to speak, for uh, uh, fulfilling this work ethic. So yes. All right. Very good. Thank you. There's good comments and good questions here. Now, what I want to do, uh, we, we've used up about 45 minutes of class, so we're not going to get this done. But the last major part of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, 10 through 20, this last major part is what we sometimes call the full armor of God, put on the armor of God, all of that. But this part of this is to foster the kind of unity that Paul wants to see in the Ephesians church, but it also is the final aspect of being under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because the challenge, if you've never studied this, you're going to see it in a minute, or if you have studied it, you may have struggled with it. When Paul talks about putting on the full armor, what does he mean by all this? Because we don't literally dress like this every day. So what is he talking about here? And so let me give a little bit of a background to this, and then we'll, we'll get into, uh, into the text itself. You have a copy of this in your notes. Uh, this is a wonderful uh, visual put out by the Rose Publishing people out in California, but uh, it's it's tremendous illustration of what a typical Roman soldier looked like, an infantry soldier. And um, most expired. I don't see any reason why this wouldn't be the case. Now, Ephesians is a prison epistle of Paul. It's one of the four epistles that are called the prison epistles. The other three are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But anyway, because Paul wrote this from prison, he would have been in the presence of Roman guard. They guarded him in six-hour shifts. And so it, it seems reasonable. This is not original with me. But as Paul is writing this letter, the Holy Spirit brings to his mind, look at that Roman soldier. What a perfect illustration of how you dress each day for the spiritual battle. And so Paul is going to take each part of the Roman soldier's uh, attire and make it into a figure of speech for the spiritual life. So each one of these parts is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech representing some aspect of the Christian's life. And so as we look at this, the context is is, as Paul is saying, the context is you are in a spiritual battle. The reality of your life is spiritual warfare. You have an enemy. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are in his kingdom. You're part of his family. You, you are secure in your position of justification. You have been declared righteous. God doesn't take that away. But you're engaged in a battle. And so, Paul said, I'm reading now from verse 10 and 5, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Every one of those terms, strong, strength, 
Might is a military term. Every one of those terms was used in the Greco-Roman world in a military sense. So if you read this, then as in, in the Greek, and you know the language, you're going to say, wow, he's talking about a warfare here. He's talking about some military dimension of life. So he's saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So that what does that tell us? If you're going to prepare for battle, the spiritual battle, then you need the equipment that the Lord provides. And that strong strength and might is this, it's modified in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You're strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. So it is the power of God through the being filled with the Holy Spirit, back to 518. Okay, so how do I do it? Command, put on the whole armor of God with this intended result, that you may be able to stand, another military term, against the schemes of the devil. So in that verse, what do we do? We dress for battle. Who is our enemy? The devil. And so the goal is that you will stand and again, that's a military term. The Roman soldiers' boots had hobnails in them, and they would dig those boots into the ground so that they could stand. And so I'm, I'm trying to flesh out that metaphor. So the idea is you take the strength of God, verse 10, his might, you dress for battle against your enemy, Satan, with this goal that you can stand. And so, remember, this is not talking about your position of salvation. That's secure. This is in the sanctification process. There is someone who wants you to be defeated. It's Satan. It's your adversary, the devil. So how do I go about this? Because, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so each one of those, those, those the terms, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, are ways of talking about the diabolical army of Satan, the demons. Satan rebelled against God, and if we understand Revelation 12, verse 4, one-third of the angels followed Satan in that rebellion. And so our enemies are the army of Satan who stands against us that are in rebellion against God. And so we are to understand the, this isn't—I'm uh, trying to think of an example— this isn't, you know, the wicked witch of the north or south or east or west or whatever it is in The Wizard of Oz. These are diabolical powers that have as their singular goal to destroy and defeat God and to destroy and defeat God by destroying and defeating his people, you and me. 
And so Paul says, you're engaged in a spiritual battle, and you need to dress for battle in the strength of the might of the Lord, be strong in him. Now, with all of that said, I mean, he really just lays this out on the table. You are in a spiritual battle, you Ephesians, and by extension, now you and me, 2,000 years later. So what what do we understand? Let me go to our, our slide here again. What do we understand about this? He's using the figure of a Roman soldier dressing for his day. Each one of these, whether it's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, now listen very carefully to this sentence. These represent the positional truth that each one of you and each one of, uh, each one of us have, you and me, each one of us has as followers of Jesus as members of his family, as citizens of his kingdom, using other descriptive phrases of who we are in Christ. And so it's really important as we get started with this, we'll never finish it today, but we see these as figures of speech using a Roman soldier getting dressed for his day, figures of speech that describe our position. This is who we are. These Items characterize us. Use them. And again, it reminds us sanctification is not a passive process. It's an active process. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, because God is at work within you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 6. And so we are actively engaged in loving obedience in this, of, of Jesus Christ in this process of sanctification. Here's an illustration of this. Remember who you are. Dress for that each day. Here's who I am. I'm ready. So, I'm going to go through each one of these, make a couple comments, then next week we're going to take each one of them apart in a significant way. So, verse 14, stand therefore. Okay, now that takes you back. That takes you back to the goal. Stand firm. End of verse uh, 13. There, I didn't read verse, so therefore take up the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on uh, the readiness given by the gospel peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The evil one is another name for the devil. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The, the term there is rhema, it's not logos. I want to talk about why he chooses that term. And then number eight, uh, number seven, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, I'm, I'm not going to read the rest of, of this parable. We'll, we'll deal with that next week. But you have, some people say six, I think seven aspects of dressing each day. In a sense, 
it is rem- we are to remind ourselves who am I in Christ? When when I become a Christian, when I become a follower of Christ, I'm in now in the process of sanctification. I constantly, continually must remind myself of my resources. Here's what I have available to me. And so as Paul, and it's really quite interesting how he does it, he starts exactly how the Roman soldier would begin to put his clothing on. The very first thing he does is put on his belt, because everything else in his armor is connected to that belt. He doesn't start with the helmet. He starts with the belt. And it's isn't it the belt of truth? You follow someone who said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have David praying in Psalm 119. You have Jesus praying in John 17. Oh, God, your word is truth. We are not committed to a lie. We are committed to truth. And that is the central element of how we dress. We have not believed a lie. We are not following a liar. Satan is a liar, the follower of lies. Jesus speaks of him. He was a liar from the beginning. You don't follow him anymore. The belt of truth. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that focuses specifically on who am I in Christ? I'm righteous. I have been declared righteous. That's justification. I have been totally forgiven, acquitted of all my sin. I have been declared righteous. It's an alien righteousness. It's not my righteousness, which I've earned. It's the righteousness of Jesus imputed to my life. So I not only face my enemies committed to truth, I face my enemies as one who is righteous in the eyes of God, He has declared me righteous. Satan has no authority over me unless I allow him to have authority over me. And so the first parts of the armor define in a marvelous fashion our position in Christ. I'm trying to... I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to go any further because the next thing I want to talk quite a bit about. Let me let me share with you a story, if I can, about how important this is. Um, some of you know this; most of you probably don't. But my wife, uh, Peggy, uh, been married to her for 52 years, but she has a heart condition and she has an autoimmune disease, and she's had. Um, a pretty tough decade. There's a lot, a lot of things that have gone wrong and so on. And right after she was diagnosed with with um, with her condition, uh, I would call her every day uh, when I, I was in leadership and so on. And so particularly when she's in the center of this, it was really some difficult uh, months there. I called her and I said, how are you doing today? And then her response was, well, you know, today I didn't put on my armor. It's really been a difficult day. Uh, and she was talking just about a number of the things that were part of her, her illness and the, the things she struggles with, and it was overwhelming her. And I, I like that thought. I didn't put on my armor today. And what she means, I'm forgetting who I am in Christ. 
I'm allowing the circumstances to overwhelm me instead of Jesus to engulf me. This is who I am. Live that way. And I, I've always, I've used that illustration a number of times over the last several years because it reflects what Paul is really intending here. If you want to stand against the enemy, each morning you have a choice. You begin the day, whether you go through this as a regimen or just you just are committed to this. You begin the day, here's who I am in Christ. I'm ready. Whatever the world, whatever Satan's going to throw at me, I'm ready. Because this is who I am in Christ. And that's what Paul is really getting at here. This isn't some magical thing you go through each morning. Okay, now I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Now I'm putting, well, in a way you can do that, but it's just, this is a reminder of who we are. What are the resources we have? And that's how Paul wants us to understand this. Because the reality is you're filled with the Holy Spirit who's going to enable and empower you. And here are the weapons you have that the Spirit will enable you to use. And so we'll pick up with this next week. Everybody with me? Yes. All right. One person said they're with me, but everybody's on mute, so I know you're all with me. All right, I'm going to pray because I've, I've got to get to my next thing here. So let me pray, and then I'll see you next week. We will definitely complete the book of Ephesians next week. And so if you have the notes that Joel sent out, you might want to have them available next week from Mark because we'll get started in that book too. Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder of a work ethic which is sourced in God's revelation to us for both the employee and the employer. It's a work ethic that ultimately stems from this reality. Our real boss is Jesus. The real master in our lives, the real Lord is Jesus. So we serve him even in the workplace. And this, that is a phenomenal thought. It is a radical thought. And as we try to live that out, it does transform the workplace. So, Lord, I pray for all of us. Many are in this group particularly are retired, but still there is the opportunity for a work ethic in what we do. We pray that you'll help us to be men of, of, of faith and men of God who represent you. Help us also, as we've just begun this, to remember that we are in a spiritual battle. We have an enemy. And how we prepare for that battle with the goal of standing, standing firm, this is majestic. We've just begun it. We want to complete it next week. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring this, for the Apostle Paul to write it. May you use it in our lives as we represent you and stand for you in a world that's very dark and very much opposed to everything that's important to you. So again, Lord, help us to represent you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, doctor. You're thank welcome. you. You're welcome.